Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from our slightly different perspective. As we kind of move further along on the path towards enlightenment in the world of botanical-style aquariums, I'm constantly thinking about the hows and whys of what we do. Now, we've evolved a lot in our techniques, you know, stuff like how to prepare botanical materials, the pace at which we add them, how to gauge their impact, etc., etc. And of course, we're also getting pretty good at accepting and understanding the progression of what happens to these types of aquariums. You know, the formation of biofilms, the tinting of the water, and the ultimate decomposition of the material. We're going beyond just looking at these things and freaking out and attempting to understand what causes these things, how they form, and most important, what benefits they can bring to our aquarium. One of the questions which I'm asked by the uninitiated a lot is, why do you add this stuff to your aquariums? It's a truly foundational question, of course, one which literally makes us think through the entire process. And obviously, I can go on and on and get into the answer in great detail, but I think we more or less covered the why part of the equation since day one uh, of our column, uh, the tint, and now the podcast. So I'm not going to go on too much detail about that. Suffice it to say, we play with botanicals in our aquariums because they help us replicate, in some manner, the processes and conditions which occur in natural systems. It's as simple and as complex as that. It's all about replicating the look and function of nature, and most important, helping to understand why. And the most important thing is not to get too far out in front of this stuff and make big assumptions. Although we can replicate some aspects of nature, we don't have the technical means, at least at a hobby level, to verify all of the impacts of utilizing botanical materials in our aquariums. We just don't. To that end, you'll notice that in this column and elsewhere, you won't see us making these wild, broad assertions about what botanicals can and cannot do in aquariums. We'll only talk about things that we have first-hand experiences about. What we can report upon are the impacts that we can see and quantify in our own tanks, and we can research the potential impacts that these materials have. We can also study the botanical materials which accumulate in natural aquatic habitats and attempt to understand their influences on them. We can ask questions, we can entertain hypotheses, and we can experiment. However, we don't make assertions about them, and we discourage our community not to either. We can't. We shouldn't. I hate exaggerations, the perpetuation of myths, and the attribution of capabilities to techniques, products, etc. in the hobby, which are just marginally based on fact, especially when these ideas are pushed out by people who may not have all the facts, the personal experience, and or the background to back it up. These things have become very detrimental to the hobby. Now look, I realize that many of these things are offered up with very good intentions, not with some nefarious purpose in mind. I mean, sure, sometimes you'll see someone who has a vested interest in selling something proffered these kind of things, which flat out sucks. I think it's far more beneficial in the long run to simply acknowledge that they don't have 100% certainty about the benefits of their product, but that there are interesting results and potential benefits, and to encourage responsible experimentation. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the lane that we've operated in at Tannen, and it's led to a tremendous amount of participation and good information being created for the hobby. We as a brand and as a community, we share our successes, our challenges, and our outright failures openly. We talked about all the good and bad of what we, what we offer. We all learn together. We don't simply parrot each other, regurgitating secondhand information, and I think that's great. Unfortunately, in the hobby, it's not uncommon to see straight-up regurgitation by otherwise well-intended hobbyists, you know, making strong assertions or statements about this stuff, good or bad, who simply didn't bother to do their due diligence and research the facts for themselves before perching it out on the web with personal commentary. Often these people have no first-hand knowledge or experience with the stuff they're pushing out. You know, the aquarium equivalent of retweeting something just because. Well, that sucks too. It sucks because it doesn't really add to the body of knowledge that we're trying so hard to accumulate. It sucks because we can perpetuate second-hand knowledge that may or may not be accurate. 
As a guy who sells leaves and botanicals for a living, I've had to be careful not to regurgitate the observations of others without personal verification or to ascribe miraculous attributes to the stuff I sell because it's not only not helpful, it can be downright misleading and certainly counterproductive for the hobby and the industry by doing this. And I see a lot of counterproductive garbage being pushed out there about leaves and botanicals at scale these days. It's important to address some of this stuff from time to time, especially when it's about our use of botanicals and natural style aquariums. We have an obligation of sorts to elevate our practice of utilizing natural materials in aquariums, and that often means diving just a bit deeper when seemingly too-good-to-be-true assertions are made. Example, here's one of the most common misunderstood botanical claims. Catapa leaves can cure fish diseases. This is one where it's been perpetuated for years, often by people who sell leaves online and elsewhere, and it bothers me although it actually has some validity to it. Now, I said some validity because we in the hobby and industry tend to selectively cherry-pick stuff we like from science and run with that, often overlooking some of the more sobering realities in favor of the sizzle. Yeah, so clarification is required. Now, it's been known for many years, and we've talked about this before, by science that botanicals like catapa leaves and others do have compounds in their tissues which do have some potential medicinal functions, compounds like saponins, phytosterols, Punicalogens. I'm not even sure if I pronounced that right, but that's one of the compounds. It's a fancy name. These are all fancy names that sound really cool. These compounds are found in catapolis are often bounced around on hobby sites as, you know, the magic elixir for a variety of fish elements and maladies. And that's where the danger of regurgitation, as we talked about before, sets in. Now, I can't entirely beat the crap out of this idea that catapolis has some health benefits for fishes, as these compounds are known to provide certain health benefits in humans. Homo sapiens, that's us. And for a long time, it was anecdotally assumed that they did the same for fishes. Now, sure, humans aren't fishes, as we all know. Yet, believe it or not, there have been some studies that show the benefits to fishes imparted by substances in catapa and other leaves. So, you know, I can't beat the crap out of this. I personally stumbled across a a university study conducted in Thailand with tilapia uh, in mariculture or in uh, aquaculture project, which concluded that catapa extract was useful. And I said that in quotes for eradicating that nasty exoparasite, uh, ectoparasite, uh, trichodona, and found that the growth of a couple of strains of Ariamonas, which is another nasty bacteria, uh, was also inhibited by dosing a catapa leaf extract at a concentration of 0.5 milligrams per liter and up. In addition, the solution was shown to, re- to reduce the fungal infection in tilapia eggs. So that's pretty cool. And it's now widely accepted by science that humic substances, such as those present in catapa leaves and other botanical materials, are thought to have a wide range of health benefits for fishes in all types of habitats. We've covered this before, uh, and there's links on our site to an interesting uh, guest blog by a gentleman by the name of Vince Dollar that had a lot of great information. And we've talked about the implications for the hobby and the industry, which are profound. Although the you know botanicals and leaves are not the cure-all that many vendors have touted them as, leaves and other botanicals do possess a wide range of substances which can have significantly beneficial impact on fish health. So these claims are not entirely erroneous. However, it's important not to make overinflated assumptions about catapa or whatever and assume that there are miraculous things that we can add to our tanks to achieve this smashing success at curing sick fishes. Just because we add leaves and such to our tanks doesn't mean that they're imparting the therapeutic benefit to our fishes. Catapa extract. Well, that sounds interesting, but how was it created? What is the, what is it mixed with? Uh, what is the process? How do you how do you measure the concentration of what? Uh, the studies 
that I talked about involved an extract of catopolis at a very specific dosage, a lot more precise than simply tossing some leaves into a tank, right? So rather, I would imagine that as catopolis and other botanical materials break down in our aquariums, they impart some of these beneficial compounds into the water, perhaps fostering a more healthy environment for fishes which are accustomed to black water conditions. Perhaps they're almost an, a, a prophylactic role at preventing disease and supporting overall fish health, as opposed to functioning as some sort of specific cure-all, perhaps. And that leads to questions, of course. Again, what dosage do we apply? How many leaves steeped in how much water yields a concentration of 0.5 milligrams per liter or more? How long do these materials need to be in the aquarium to accomplish this? And is there truly some measure of effectiveness? We're learning the answers to some of these questions as a community, aren't we? I think so, but we still can't say with 100% certainty that it's the botanicals in our aquarium which are causing all these positive benefits, you know, which our community has reported with our botanical-style aquariums. We, we think they are, but we're not sure. And breaking through that barrier of assumptions, marketing hyperbole, and fluff that's often clouded this sort of tinted world before we all came together and made a real effort to understand the function as well as the aesthetics of this dynamic and, you know, hobby niche will only benefit the hobby uh, as a whole. Let's keep working together to push the state of the hobby farther than ever, backed up with facts and personal experiences. We aren't sure when we aren't sure about something, there's absolutely no shame in saying we're just not sure. Everybody wins that way. And there's something that's really interesting about our work as a community. There's been a fair amount of research and speculation by both scientists and hobbyists about the processes which occur when terrestrial materials like leaves and botanical items enter aquatic environments. And most of it is based upon field observations by scientists and ecologists. As hobbyists, though, we have a unique opportunity to observe firsthand the effects and impacts of this material in our own aquariums. I love this aspect of our practice because it creates really interesting possibilities to embrace and create more naturally functioning aquariums while possibly even validating the, or, or confirming the field work done by scientists. It goes without saying that there's implications for both the biology and chemistry of uh, aquatic habitats when leaves and you know, other botanical materials enter them. Now, many of these are things that we as hobbyists observe every day in our own aquariums, and that's where it gets really interesting. Uh, here's an interesting example of making sort of home aquarium field observations based on the work done by scientists. It's about our old nemesis biofilm. A lab study I came upon found out that when leaves are saturated in water, biofilm is at its peak when other nutrients like nitrates, phosphate, etc. tested at their lowest limits. Now this is interesting to me because it seems that in our botanical style blackwater aquariums, biofilms tend to occur early on when one would assume that these compounds are at their highest concentrations, right? And biofilms are essentially the byproduct of bacterial colonization, meaning that, well, there must be a lot of food for the bacteria at some point if there's a lot of biofilm, right? More questions. Does it simply imply that biofilms arrive on the scene and peak out really quickly, an indication that there's actually less nutrient in the water column at that point? Is the nutrient bound up in the biofilms? And when our fishes and other animals consume them, does this provide a significant source of sustenance for them? Hmm. What are the implications of biofilms as a sort of a nutrient export mechanism? Oh, and is there an, uh, uh, and here's another you know interesting tangential observation which scientists made uh, in a study that I stumbled on. When leaves fall into streams, field uh, studies have shown that their nitrogen content typically will increase. Why is this important? Well, scientists see this as an evidence of microbial colonization, which is correlated by a measured increase in oxygen consumption. Now, this is interesting to me because on those rare disasters that we see in our tanks, when we do see them, of course, which fortunately isn't that often. They're usually caused by a hobbyist adding a large quantity of leaves and botanicals all at once, resulting in the fishes gasping at the surface, which is a sign of, what, oxygen depletion, right? Makes sense. Interesting. 
Now, these are interesting clues about the decomposition of leaves when they enter our aquatic ecosystems. They have implications for our use of botanicals and the way we manage our aquariums. I think that the f- simple fact that pH and oxygen tend to go down uh, quickly when leaves are initially submerged in pure water during lab tests gives us some ideas of what to expect. A lot of the initial environmental changes will happen rather rapidly and then stabilize over time. Which, of course, leads me to conclude, that's always a dangerous word, but it leads me to conclude that the development of sufficient populations of organisms to process the incoming botanical load is a critical part of the establishment of our botanical-style aquariums. I don't think that's a big stretch. Obviously, though, it's a hypothesis which directly impacts our practices and techniques. Now, sure, one could say that I'm cherry-picking this stuff from scientific literature, just like I was blaming other people. But that's true. But I'm cherry-picking it not because it supports some narrative of mine, Rather, it opens up the opportunity to correlate things which happen in the wild habitats with those things that happen in our own aquariums. So exploration and consideration are two really important endeavors. And the topics mentioned here are just a few of the many, many interesting ones that we can explore as hobbyists that help advance the state of the art of botanical style aquariums and dispel some of the regurgitated myths that seem to abound in the hobby. By moving forward in a measured manner and sharing our first-hand experiences freely, we create this vibrant, exciting area of the hobby where everyone who participates can add to the amazing body of knowledge. And I encourage you to stay involved, stay curious, stay open-minded, stay honest, stay diligent, stay excited, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Bellman. Thanks so much for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.